The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So tonight we're going to be looking at a specific sutta or sutra from the Anguttara Nikaya or the numerical discourses of the Buddha. And that's this big, fat, (laughs) thick book. But the sutta is quite short, so don't be put off by it. As you may know, uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi is the major translator of the suttas or the Buddhist teachings from Pali to English, and he has translated this. So this particular sutta is called the Vipassala Sutta. Vipassala means distortion or misperception or inversion. And I'm going to start with reading it to you because it's not that long, and then we'll discuss it. Bhikkhus, there are these four inversions of perception, inversions of mind and inversions of view. What for? The inversion of perception, mind, and view that takes the impermanent to be permanent. Two, the inversion of perception, mind, and view that takes what is suffering to be pleasurable. Three, the inversion of perception, mind, and view that takes what is not self to be self. And four, the inversion of perception, mind, and view that takes what is unattractive to be attractive. These are the four inversions of perception, mind, and view. There are bhikkhus, these four non-inversions of perception, non-inversions of mind, and non-inversions of view. What for? The non-inversion of perception, mind, and view that takes the impermanent to be impermanent. The non-inversion of perception, mind, and view that takes what is suffering to be suffering. The non-inversion of perception, mind, and view that takes what is not self to be not self. And the non-inversion of perception, mind, and view that takes what is unattractive to be unattractive. These are the four non-inversions of perception, mind, and view. And then it's repeated more simply. Perceiving permanence in the impermanent. Perceiving pleasure in what is suffering. 
perceiving a self in what is not self and perceiving attractiveness in what is unattractive. Beings resort to wrong views, their minds deranged, their perceptions twisted. Such people are bound by the yoke of Mara, Mara being the Buddhist version of the devil or the tempter, and do not reach security from bondage. Beings continue in samsara, going to birth and death. But when the Buddhas arise in the world, sending forth a brilliant light, they reveal this dharma that leads to the stilling of suffering. Having heard it, wise people have regained their sanity. They have seen the impermanent as impermanent and what is suffering as suffering. They have seen what is non-self as non-self and the unattractive as unattractive. By the acquisition of right view, they have overcome all suffering. So really what this is saying, and remember at the time of the Buddha, it was an oral tradition. So things were repeated over and over uh, in order to remember the teachings of the Buddha. But basically it's talking about how we misperceive things and how this misperception leads to <laughs> proliferating of the mind, which leads to developing a view that very often is erroneous. But because we didn't catch the misperception, we believe it. We see it as true, and it may not be. And this is how Buddhism sees mental disease or mental illness. <clears throat> not seeing clearly, not seeing accurately what is actually there. And it happens to us over and over and over again. We misperceive something, and then that triggers all this thinking, which triggers an erroneous view, which more often than not, we cling to. <laughs> we believe it, and we cling to it. So this sutta is actually talking about a way for us to learn to see things as they are as they really are, not as we think they should be, not as we would like them to be, but as they really are. And that's the definition of good mental health, seeing things and understanding things clearly. So it talks about the three levels of distortion. There's distortion of perception, what we 
what we see or hear or taste or feel. There's the level of thinking, which is the next level. And then there's the level of view. And in these three levels, there are four ways that we misperceive or misunderstand, misconstrue what is actually there. And these four distortions or inversions, he calls them, or um, misperceptions are sensing no change in what's changing, sensing pleasure in what is suffering, sensing an I where there is no I, and sensing the unlovely as lovely or unattractive as unattractive. So the first three refer to the three characteristics of existence. The three characteristics are anicca, dukkha, anatta. Anicca being the understanding, the realization that everything Everything, including us, is impermanent. There is nothing that lasts forever. Everything is constantly changing and arises, has a time, and passes away. It's all impermanent. The second is the understanding, the realization that there is unsatisfactoriness in this conditioned world. In this conditioned world, there is nothing that will grant us lasting satisfaction. We think there is. <laughs> we act as if there was. We try to acquire things, ideas, whatever, um, because we think they will bring us happiness. And they may for a short time, but not lasting. And the third, anatta, or anatta, is the recognition that nothing in this conditioned world has a solid, separate, um, lasting <clears throat> anything. <laughs> not us, not anything. Everything is empty, as we say, of a self or a separate existence. And if that doesn't make sense to you right now, let it be. <laughs> Just hear the words. So those are the three characteristics. And when we see clearly, we see those characteristics. Those are the insights that we gain through meditation when 
we are very mindful and see things clearly. But so often, of course, we don't see them clearly. We take, as the sutra said, we take things to be other than what they are through our ignorance, through our inability to see clearly, through our turning away from what is true. Sometimes we turn away because we really don't understand. Sometimes we turn away because we really don't want to understand. Um, but it is our ignorance that allows us to see things in ways that they are not. So we'll look at the different levels of distortion or um, inversion or perversions. And the first is perception, sanya, vipalasa. <laughs> Don't worry about that word. That's a poly word for inversion or misperception. Mistaking something for something else. And this first level of perception is the easiest to clear up. The most common example given is misperceiving a rope for a snake. So we're walking down a path and we see in front of us something coiled and it looks like a snake. And we think it's a snake. Now, if we don't investigate, if we don't look closer, then the mind can go off on all kinds of tangents about this snake and whether there are more snakes around and whether it's dangerous or not, whether it's poisonous or not, and on and on and on. And we may develop a view about this whole area, that it's not safe and we shouldn't be here, and da 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 But we can easily repair this misconception by just looking a little more carefully or going a little bit closer and then we see, oh, it's not a snake at all, it's a rope. Or sometimes it's referred to as a stick. <laughs> but whatever it is, we see clearly, oh, I've misperceived. I thought it was a snake, but indeed it's not. It's just a rope. So uh, as I'm getting older and my eyesight isn't quite as acute as it used to be. My brain isn't quite as quick as it used to be. I have noticed that it's very easy for me to misperceive things, especially at night. And it's really, uh, it's kind of interesting, it's kind of funny. Um, <clears throat> You know, it's a combination, I think, of the eyes and the brain uh, misinterpreting what I see. But at first, it was kind of jarring. And now I know, okay, okay, just look closely. If there's something a little far away, uh, something very ordinary, a tree, 
that I see all the time, but in a certain light from a certain angle can look like a person or a dog or some other thing. Sometimes I really chuckle because it's like, what is, what is that? Oh, it's a house that I see all the time. And somehow, just, just the way I'm approaching it or uh, the lighting or whatever, I can't, I can't tell what it is. But I get a little closer or I see it a little better. Oh, okay, that's what it is. So that's the kind of uh, perception that is most easily uh, repaired or seen clearly. So we perceive with our eyes, we perceive with our ears, with our nose, tactily. We take in information through our senses. And then what we tend to do is develop or come up with judgments about those things. So if we don't see the rope clearly, or I don't see whatever I'm looking at, clearly, then I can come up with all kinds of ideas and judgments and untrue thoughts. And often those thoughts can really lead us astray. So one example that comes to my mind, because it's happened so much recently, is what happens with young black men and the police. And it might be that there's an underlying stereotype, there's an underlying belief uh, about young black men uh, that may come from who knows where, the culture or whatever, and so a policeman pulls over a young black man, and the man reaches, you know, maybe for his wallet, maybe for his driver's license, maybe for a flashlight, who knows? But if the officer has this distorted view he can perceive that as a threat or, uh, yeah, mis misinterpret what the man is doing. And we've seen that so often recently. Then in the officer's mind, you know, there's this proliferation and, and which leads to fear and boom, you know, he shoots, or he does something very foolish, and it ends in tragedy. And it's all a misperception. Now that's a, you know, uh, what, a very, very tragic misperception. But it happens, and it can happen in lots of different ways. And it's, it's, Fueled, the misperception is fueled by an underlying uh, misunderstanding 
or fear or view of some sort. Some people, not just police, but some people, have the mistaken view that a young man of color is dangerous. And so with that view, then any movement could be interpreted as a threat and acted upon out of fear. So this is a stark example why it's so important for us to be aware of the way in which the mind works to distort or to see mistakenly what we are perceiving. So then the second level of distortion is thought or citta. And typically, this thinking is triggered by a perception of some sort. We hear, see, smell, whatever, something, and and misinterpret what it is, and then the mind proliferates. The mind goes off and can come up with all kinds of ideas. So sometimes we we have the idea that people that are like us are safe. Somehow we have developed this thought. And so we see people that whatever, look like us, think like us, uh, somehow are like us, and we feel safe. But also the opposite. If we see someone who is not like us in some way, we can believe, we can think that that person or those persons are not safe. And it may have absolutely nothing to do with reality. The person like us may be less safe (laughs) than the person who is not like us. So that's a combination of a perception and then the mind proliferating, the mind going on. We have the idea that certain things are permanent. We like to think, especially ourselves, (laughs) we're permanent. We like to think that what our houses, uh, buildings, even though on some level we know they're not, we on a daily basis uh, or on a feeling level like to think that they're permanent. And then when they prove to be not permanent, it's disaster. We're, we're really thrown because we had forgotten that nothing is permanent and nothing less. We like to think that we know right and we know what's not right. We can be very sure, very clear about that. 
Only what happens when somebody else thinks, no, that's not right. That is right. And it's totally the opposite of what we had thought. We can have all kinds of ideas about our identity. We, we build up huge <laughs> ego identities. I am this, I am that, I am not this, I am not that. And then we hold so tightly to that idea, to that view. So I could, uh, uh, in fact, at times I do think I'm a kind person. Not I'm a person who can be kind. I am a kind person. I am not a cruel person. I am not an unkind person. So what happens when I do something unkind? Because all of us do. No matter how kind we are, 90% of the time, there will be a time when we do something unkind. You know, out of ignorance, out of whatever. And that really rattles our identity, doesn't it? It's different from what we had convinced ourselves that we were. So being aware of our thoughts, being aware of what we think, and then the third level is that of view, or ditta. And this is the most difficult to uproot. This is the most difficult to change. Because when we have uh, perceived something and then thought about it and then come to a view, a conclusion, we tend to hold very tightly to that view. If we look around the world, we can see example after example of how people are holding so tightly to a, a view or views. In fact, I would suggest that most, if not all, of the wars that are going on have to do with view. Each side, of course, thinking their view is correct and the other view is wrong. And people kill, literally kill, <laughs> over different views. They can be religious views, they can be political views, they can be tribal views, they can be uh, territorial or whatever. People do incredible things. So it makes me think of what's going on in Myanmar. And maybe, maybe you all know where, unfortunately, the Buddhist government uh, and some, as I understand it, Buddhist monks are being incredibly cruel, are driving out the Rohingya Muslims from the territory where they've lived for years. And they have, apparently, the view that they're not really citizens. They're not really citizens of Myanmar. 
And so somehow that gives them the right to <laughs> uh, push them out. And so they're refugees going to Bangladesh. And of course, a lot of them don't make it. And uh, the women are raped and... The men, are, all of them, are killed. It's horrible. I don't think it's done in the name of Buddhism, but it is Buddhists that are doing it. Totally a misguided view, of course, and totally not at all what the Buddha taught. But every time I hear it on the news, you know, it's the Buddhist government... <laughs> Uh, and again, a very stark example of a misperception, a, a distorted view that is held to very tightly and causing incredible suffering, just incredible. So one of the things I really value about Buddhist practice is the understanding that we hold our views lightly. That we can have a view that's fine, but we understand that it may change. As the situation changes, the view may change. We may change. And therefore, there's no reason to fight over it. There's no reason to kill over it. It's a view. It doesn't make it true. <laughs> this is what most people don't get. If it's a view or a belief, it's true. No, it's not. It's a view. It may or may not be true. Or it may be true at one time and untrue at another. Or it may be neither true nor untrue. <laughs> But the recognition that we hold views, we hold our ideas lightly. I do a lot of interfaith work, and when I do, I am just struck time after time after time how so many traditions hold so tightly to their views, to their ideas, to their beliefs. And it makes me so grateful for this practice that, that I have learned. I mean, I'm sure I used to, and I have learned over the years to hold things very lightly. They may or may not be true. So how do we clear up these distortions, these misperceptions? And the answer is the same as it is for so many things, our mindfulness. <laughs> we use our mindfulness persistently, consistently, <laughs> vigilantly to be sure that we are seeing things clearly. That if you know, there's what appears to be a snake in the path. We look carefully and see. And when it's not, great. We can let go of that very quickly. We don't proliferate and go on about it. We can question our perceptions and our thoughts 
and our views. And that doesn't mean that, uh, that we don't take them seriously or that we're always doubting. It just means that, as the Buddha suggested, we need to check things out for ourselves. We don't take anything because somebody else said so, not even the Buddha. The Buddha himself said, don't take anything I say without checking it out for yourself. That's pretty radical, I think. But that's what we need to do. We need to use our wisdom uh, to check everything out. You know, if we're part of a group, it's so easy, whether it's a political group, a religious group, a family group, whatever, it's so easy to adopt the views of that group without critical thinking. Just because that's what that group says, then, oh, well, and we identify with them. Well, then we take everything they say as true. No, no. We might uh, feel a certain resonance with that group. That's fine. But that doesn't mean we take everything they say as absolute truth. We need to think for ourselves. I think critical thinking is probably the most important uh, tool that is needed in the world today. So many people do not think critically. They just take whatever a certain group says, and they take it as truth. We can use the four foundations of mindfulness to help us to see more clearly, to help us to be uh, more mindful, to practice our mindfulness more deeply. So just quickly, the four foundations are mindfulness of the body, the breath in the body, mindfulness of Vedana, Vedna meaning the feeling tone, if things are pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, or neither, because that often determines how we see things or what we think of things. If they're pleasant, then we think that's wonderful, we want more. If they're unpleasant, we think that's terrible, and we resist or push it away. The third foundation is being aware of our thoughts and feelings and mental states. And the fourth is mindfulness of the dharmas or dhammas, the teachings, uh, particularly the five hindrances, which can trip us up if we're not mindful. So we want to see clearly with our wisdom the three characteristics the uh, uh, see clearly that everything is impermanent, that everything is constantly changing, that there is inherent unsatisfactoriness in this conditioned world, that there is not a solid, separate existence to ourselves or to anything. And to see, it's interesting how this is stated, but to see the unlovely as unlovely. <laughs> to see the unattractive as unattractive and not fool ourselves that it really is 
attractive. So we want to see things as they truly are. Not our projections, not our misinterpretations, not how we think they should be or we'd like them to be, but how they are in fact. Then we can uproot these distortions, these vipalasas. And we make visible what is invisible. Sometimes our views, our prejudices, our judgments are invisible because they're sort of, uh, they're not unconscious, but they're not in our full awareness. And then we act out of those. Anything that we're not aware of, the shadow, it might be called, the dark, anything that's not recognized can run us, can rule us. And so we want to see clearly what we may not be seeing so that we're not run by these invisible understandings or beliefs. We want to see ourselves clearly. We want to watch our misinterpretations, our misconceptions. Um, We want to ask ourselves, are they really accurate? Are they really true? Before we latch on and hold on to them so tightly. We want to see as clearly as we can what is true and how we might distort things, how we might misperceive or misconstrue things. So I'll end with just this simple review of the sutta. These four, O monks, are distortions of perception, distortions of thought, distortions of view, sensing no change in the changing, sensing pleasure in suffering, assuming self when there's no self, sensing the the unlovely as lovely, gone astray with wrong views, beings misperceive with distorted minds. Bound in the bondage of Mara, those people are far from safety. They're beings that go on flowing, going again from birth to death. But when in the world of darkness, Buddhas arise to make things bright, They present this profound teaching, which brings suffering to an end. So when we misperceive, we misjudge, we suffer. And when we clear it up, we end suffering. When those with wisdom have heard this, they recuperate their right mind. They see change in what is changing, suffering where they're suffering, non-self in what is without self. They see the unlovely as such. 
By this acceptance of right view, they overcome all suffering. So we have uh, a few minutes. I wonder if there are questions or comments, concerns. I know it can sound like a lot <laughs> and, and sound maybe rather technical, but I think in a way it's very simple. It's simply doing our best to see things as clearly as we can and checking things out so that we see when we're not seeing clearly. That's, that's the danger, of course, that we misperceive. We don't know we have misperceived. And then we go on thinking that. And we may act very unskillfully out of that misperception. But if we remember <laughs> to use our mindfulness to see things as clearly as we can and to question our perceptions. Then we can keep from going down that road and developing um, erroneous views that can lead to enormous suffering for ourselves and for others. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I guess the, the question is sort of a little bit more context about that because you know, sometimes uh, you may hold your views lightly, but other people are coming at you with very strong convictions that you may not agree with, and they may be imposing them on you or on others. And I, I guess I'm just asking, you know, how, how do you s square that where if you're holding your views lightly, you, um, you know, you may be pushed over, you may be overwhelmed, you may be um, challenged in, in yeah. ways that you're not expecting or ways that you're not necessarily prepared to deal with. Good, good question. <laughs> um, you can't, of course change how somebody else feels. But you can understand that your view may or may not be correct and may or may not be the only one. So if you're not holding really tight, you're not coming back at the other person or persons with that same kind of energy. And you might come back with something like, well, you know, uh, that's not how I see it, but I understand that's how you see it. Or even with some things, you might say, well, you know, I'll consider that. I don't see it that way, but you could have a point. I'll think about it. Now, that's not acquiescing. 
It's simply refusing to battle. And it tends to diffuse a situation. So to hold our views lightly is not weak. In fact, I think it takes courage. (laughs) Because sometimes, for some people, it's easier to hold tightly to a view. I know when I was young, it was much easier to, uh, uh, well, particularly with religion. I was raised Christian, and I, I did not appreciate the parables, <laughs> the, the teachings, and, you know, just tell us what, how it is, and then we can do it, <laughs> which, you know, is... Uh, I've come full circle from there. But I understand that sometimes it's easier to see things black and white, to have a strong view and hold on to it, than it is to say, well, there are different ways of seeing things. And um, right now, this is how I'm seeing it. And I understand that you don't. It's okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I think what you're talking about, it's a little bit more, not to use a light word, but it's a little bit more of uh, one sense of style in terms of how, of the interaction itself. I mean, because I, I, what I kept coming back to is the political arena where, where you know, people are, um, it just doesn't seem to be a time to hold one's views lightly. <laughs> oh, I think just the opposite. It is. It is. Yeah, we're so polarized because people are holding so tightly to their views. Now, (laughs) that doesn't mean we let go of our compassion or our loving kindness or our concern about people. See, we can practice our practice very diligently without holding on to a political view. And that's the trick, I think, because people are getting more and more entrenched in a particular view. And it's not the political view that's important. It's our compassion. So we don't want to um, help people because it's the democratic thing to do. <laughs> we want to help people because it's compassionate. That's, I know that's a very superficial example, but you see what I mean? We, it's not the view that's important. It's our compassion that's important. And it's so easy to get stuck now because we are so polarized um, and because things can look so uh, uncompassionate. <laughs> um, and, and that can make us really hold on tighter. You see? So we're not, we're not losing our compassion. We're not caring any less about each other. In fact, we might be caring more. But it doesn't have to be this way or that way or whatever. Okay? Yeah. I apologize.
apologize if I'm asking the same question in a different way, but at some point the rubber does meet the road and there are some circumstances where you have to make a choice and that choice might um, conflict with what other people feel. Um, in those circumstances, how can you hold your perspective lightly, I guess? Does that, does that make sense? Well, I mean, like, say, say yes. you need something to change, or at least you believe something needs to change. Um, how do you affect change if you were just kind of holding everything so lightly? <laughs> I guess I just feel like, um, Part of it too is is if everyone had that compassion and was willing to show that they were willing to not hold so tightly to their view, that that's almost what everyone else needs to be able to see. That it's there's this constant battle to, you know, convince you that my way is correct. But if if everybody was to take a step back and give a little, then I don't think everyone else would. Then I don't think everyone would be forcing so much. And then we would have the space to be able to see that there are multiple views. Um, and so it seems, as you said, that right now everyone just wants to hold on so tightly. But if everyone was, everyone was doing the exact opposite, then, um, you know, then, then I, I think there would be the space for everyone really to understand how there's so many different ways to see everything and, and that everyone's voice um, deserves to be heard too so i don't know if that yes <laughs> helped answer what you, you said. can hold uh to an understanding to a desire to uh serve people to um want to change things so that people are better served But sometimes it can be done in a different way from what we think it should be. And we can't always change things. <laughs> That's one thing we recognize. What we can do as Buddhist practitioners is our very best according to the Dharma as we understand it. That doesn't mean people are going to agree and do it that way. They may not. They may not. But we can hold fast. We can stay firm in our practice, in practicing the paramitas, the, the qualities that we admire, um, I, I got an image, and I did while you were speaking, that, you know, a few years ago, um, <clears throat> with, uh, I guess it was the war in Iraq, and there was a big demonstration up in San Francisco, and there was quite a large Buddhist contingent. And, but we weren't out there like this. We sat quietly and some leaders that we might have agreed with 
we're giving these rah-rah speeches, you know, and we didn't get caught up in it. We just sat quietly. And then when we got up to March, I think we went from, from City Hall to Dolores Park or something, we walked in silence. We walked quietly, and I think we had a banner. Uh, did we change anyone? I don't know. <laughs> we were a present. It was very noticeable, and I think in some ways very powerful, um, but in a very quiet way. Um, so one thing that I kept on thinking of while uh, hearing these questions is one of the first things that you touched on is recognizing the real versus what is not real. And the thing that a lot of people uh, forget, and it's very easy to forget, is that much of this life falls into what's not real. You know, through this practice, we're trying to find that peace and that love within ourself, which is really the only thing that is real in your life. So in fighting these battles and trying to have the Democrats beat the Republicans, you're losing that sense of what is real within yourself by feeding into this that is not real. So although you think that you're actually winning something, you're winning an illusion. You know, so you're feeding into this anger and you're feeding into this anger that you hold towards other people and you're letting go of that peace and that love that exists within yourself. And you think that you're winning something, but you're winning something that is eventually going to crumble over time. Where the only thing that is going to last within this life and the next is that peace and that love that exists within yourself. And that's what you need to focus on holding on to. <laughs> Just and then after what, this, we should stop. Uh, so so I, I was doing a sitting with Howie Cohn, who's a spirit rock teacher, and he he gave a story w which stuck in my mind just on a more personal level, but he, he had a teacher in India who she was riding in a, a rickshaw or s uh, some something open, and she had a purse and she had an <laughs> umbrella, and somebody came up. That was Sharon. <laughs> oh, do you know the story? <laughs> yeah. And, and the, the story was, you know, this person had to take her purse, and she said she took an umbrella and beat him with all the compassion in her heart. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I like that story because, it, you know, I, I, I think at a certain point you, you know, I, I, I understand what you're saying, but you, you, there comes a point where you have to protect um, in, in a physical way or, or, or choose not to, but I... I um, that story always stuck in my mind. So. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a great story. Yeah, so we want to, uh, along that line, you know, the Buddha is reported to have said that self-defense is fine as long as there's no ill will. And that's kind of what that points to, that, you know, you can defend yourself, Sharon, but um, as long as it's with loving kindness. Yeah. Well, thank you all. I hope this has been provocative. <laughs> Have a good week. And I'll see you actually again in a couple weeks. <laughs>